This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and happy Halloween if you're celebrating. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. What will it take to get healthcare back on track as the COVID pandemic wanes? A report's been released from the Ontario Medical Association with an extensive plan, but it really comes down to five recommendations. Reduce wait times and the backlog of services for patients needing a test or treatment, waiting for any type of surgery or procedure, or living with a chronic disease. Expand mental health and addiction services. Improve and expand home care and other community care and strengthen public health and pandemic preparedness. So how does this stack up with what the governing PCs at Queen's Park are already promising in terms of clearing the backlog and reorganizing the system? Libby Snymer asked this of Dr. Sohail Gandhi, a former president of the Ontario Medical Association, family doctor Michelle Cohen, and Dr. Adam Kassam, current OMA president. Let me first say that we recognize and appreciate the leadership and contribution of the Ford government's commitments and uh, their investments, uh, not only in the the issue of backlog and and care provided uh, to get through that, but also sort of looking forward to the future. And we also recognize the work that the chief medical officers of health have done, as well as Ontario's doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers throughout this pandemic. And while the investments that the government has made to date is, I believe, putting us on the right track, we need to keep on doing more because ultimately this is a plan that actually takes us out years, not just, um, you know, months ahead. And so I think what our focus on here with this plan is not only the next, let's say, six months of this fourth wave and, and, and you know, getting into this recovery, but a recovery that is likely to take years uh, to, to basically improve our healthcare system. What's your estimate of how long that will take? Well, I think that based on our data that we have analyzed uh, at the Ontario Medical Association, you talked a little bit about the backlog at the top of the segment, which is that 20 million points of care have gone delayed as a result of COVID-19. So that's someone's hip or knee replacement that's gone delayed. It's someone's cataract surgery that's gone delayed. It's someone's uh, cancer diagnostic or screening, like a colonoscopy or a mammogram that's gone delayed. But as you were alluding to earlier as well, you know, this also has uh, issues in terms of access to things like community-based care or family doctors and primary care and mental health specialists. And so this uh, this is a significant issue. The magnitude is is a, is a very large one as far as the backlog. And so um, we have uh, multiple ways and avenues to try and address this. And this is what this plan offers. Let's bring in uh, Dr. Michelle Cohen, who is in Brighton, Ontario, a family physician. How do you think we're doing in terms of clearing that backlog? Well, I don't. In terms of clearing the backlog, I think we're we're just getting started, and so it will depend on what happens with this fourth wave, and and hopefully what will happen in the coming year that we will prevent uh, future waves from overwhelming our system. But uh, so my patients have 
had a number of procedures delayed or canceled. Uh, I've had that big issue with respect to that. And I know our uh, local surgeons and specialists are doing their best, but there are some things that they can't avoid. So we've had to deal with a lot of issues around procedures being delayed, and then that tends to come back to primary care um, because the patient really has nowhere else to go. And so we're kind of treading water, doing our best to try to keep the situation as stable as possible until appropriate specialist care is available. And sometimes, because I'm in a smaller area, I've had uh, patients have had to travel further than they would have had to travel otherwise um, to access specialist care when our local smaller hospitals are overwhelmed. So that's a big problem, too, because not everyone is able to to travel that far, and that can put a big demand on a family uh, to have to, to make a, a big trip out to Toronto or Kingston or Ottawa or something to access care that they could have otherwise accessed closer to home. I'd like to bring in also Dr. Sohail Gandhi in Stainer, Ontario. What about you? What have you found in your practice? Very similar to what Dr. Cohen has experienced. Uh, I would also add that I've experienced uh, a number of delays with ophthalmological procedures, uh, patients who need cataract surgery, uh, as well as uh, what Dr. Cohen has already mentioned. And, you know, just to give you an example of how, where things lie right now, in my own practice right now, I have three people who are in the hospital who are not sick, who are awaiting a nursing home bed, uh, but there aren't any beds, and I expect them to be in, in hospital taking up an acute care bed for the next three or four Four months at least, if not longer. You know, I'd really hope that this is an opportunity for the government to see that uh, massive change is needed, and, and this is a, a bit of a, a guidance to how that can happen, and that the healthcare, that the workers in the healthcare system are on board with partnering with the government to make positive change. Family doctor Michelle Cohen, Dr. Sohail Gandhi, former president of the Ontario Medical Association, and Dr. Adam Kassam, current president of the OMA. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Tuesday, long-term care minister Rod Phillips announced plans to hire another 193 inspectors for Ontario nursing homes, a measure that's been called for by CARP, a new vision of aging, and other stakeholders. But there is another issue, and it has to do with which companies will get licenses to develop more long-term care beds. Will the so-called bad actors in nursing homes where dozens of residents died of COVID-19 be rewarded with more beds? On Wednesday, Libby was joined to discuss by Dr. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and Lisa Levin, CEO of Advantage Ontario. We need to make sure that we have very strong oversight of our long-term care homes. Uh, and we've seen, as uh, you were mentioning, Libby, there were some very bad actors um, and some tragic stories that came out of the pandemic. And we need to make sure that that doesn't happen again. But we also have to look at the rest of the sector because we're in the middle of a staffing crisis. And so is this the time uh, to immediately be having tougher inspections when we don't have enough staff and we don't know anything yet about this new inspection regime? Doris, what do you think? Well, I think that inspections and special inspections that are unannounced are very, very important. And I do think they need to go hand by hand, hand in hand with improved staffing and also with this related to those inspections. Like you cannot implement inspections, which we are seeing, and also give additional beds to a place like, you know, Orchard Villa. 
that uh, should have been closed, quite frankly. And that refers to your comment about should bad apples get extra bets and, and millions and millions of dollars for extra bets. The answer to me is no. It looks to me that the applications just opened up a week ago that people who applied in 2019 have to reapply. What's the situation there? Is this just uh, you want to make sure that that doesn't happen or have any of these uh, so-called bad actors already received uh, some yeah. some more licenses? The government has had a few um, proposal calls, Libby, where they have sought um, applications. And yes, some bad actors have received uh, new beds. And now the latest one that they announced last week uh, is for another 10,000 beds. And so because not everybody who applied got um, their allocations the last few times around, they're saying if you've already applied in 2019 and you didn't get it, then you need to reapply now. But what we're saying is that all government funding for new long-term care beds in Ontario should go to not-for-profit and municipal homes. Because two out of three people on the wait list for long-term care want to be in not-for-profit or municipal homes. And we've also seen better outcomes during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, non-profit homes provide more care, 20% more care, and also municipal homes than for-profit homes and have much better outcomes. Doris, what do you think of that? So we have for many, many years said that new services, whether long-term care, home care, etc., should be invested in not-for-profit for the reasons that Lisa Levin mentioned, because the, the research and the evaluations are plentiful on the issue of deliver at lower cost, better outcomes. Uh, we are not saying that we need to repatriate all the current homes to not-for-profit, because that will be extremely disruptive to the system. But we need to put our, our line on the sand. There is a big difference between repatriating all the homes versus giving additional money to homes that should be closed. Because, as I said, some of the homes that were mentioned in the report from the Canadian Armed Forces should have been closed back then, let alone receive additional funds. And then the other line on the sand is the issue of staffing, the four hours of staffing with the percentage of, you know, PSWs no more than 55, RNs 20, 20%, and RPNs 25%. The, mini, the minister announced money for the four hours, but that will take years, and he still has not said what will be the percentage of, you know, PSWs, RNs, RPNs, which provide a different type of outcomes. Uh, the same as nurse practitioners, not a penny to have one nurse practitioner in every single uh, 120 residents in, in, in nursing homes, whether for profit or not for profit. They need the staffing to do good care. Dr. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, and Lisa Levin, CEO of Advantage Ontario. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, could we get our COVID booster shots as early as January? We'll discuss. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
This week, British Columbia's top doctor announced a program to roll out COVID-19 booster shots to anyone who's already received two doses of vaccine. The program begins in January, and residents in that province will be eligible as long as it's been six months since their second shot. With this announcement, British Columbia becomes the first jurisdiction in North America to announce a booster shot program for the general population. Will Ontario be next? Dr. Iris Gorfinkel is a family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research. Epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly is a professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. They joined Libby on Wednesday to discuss. Well, we know they work, and they work especially if you have a six- to eight-month period. But um, uh, the, the idea of everybody getting the booster shot has me somewhat uncomfortable. Uh, we've administered something like uh, 30, uh, sorry, about 40 million doses of this around the world at the moment. But somewhere around 1.4% of that vaccine has gone to countries that uh, are in a very poor uh, situation. And this is a problem. All of our, all of our variants come from these places where there's a lot of replication. We can expect more variants, probably more aggressive variants, if we don't get vaccine into these people. So that's the other side of the argument. Right, except uh, is the government, you know, f- for our purposes, is is uh, stockpiling vaccine? I don't, I don't think uh, that you know they might uh, give some additional money for for the rest of the world, but I don't think they're going to say, okay, we're emptying our stocks or not going to take delivery, uh, and we're going to send it to another part of the world. I don't think that's happening, Doctor Gorfinkel. What I find most concerning about this is that people look at it as some kind of ground-and-stone edict. Oh, no one can get the booster shot. I would suggest that as of now, as of today, individuals over 65 with severe comorbidities, I'm talking about bad lung disease, bad heart disease, diabetes, cancer, people on dialysis, you know, people who are vaccinated five months ago plus should talk to their doctor about getting a booster shot. This makes a lot of sense. All of the evidence, as far as I know, is based on mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer, the Moderna. A lot of people here got AstraZeneca. I mean, does it work in the same way in terms of waning immunity? And does the booster work in the same way? Yeah, the end point uh, for, for this is to produce that uh, humoral antibody response and, of course, the cellular response going along with that, the, the C and D cells. So they all get to that end point, but they do it by a different route. Well, the best data we have is really from Israel. And that's why so much of the data you hear about is, is around Pfizer. And, of course, there's data coming out of the U.K. as well. But when it comes to booster shots, because Israel was first giving the shots, and because they gave it rapidly and three weeks apart for Pfizer, you know, not like that. It's totally different than what happened in Canada. Many people got their vaccines as far as three months apart. Right. So it's a very different kind of situation. But the data that we have, the best data is actually based on messenger RNA technology. 
So when we talk about booster shots, generally you'll see references to those vaccines much more frequently than AstraZeneca vaccines. And what did that Israeli data show? After one dose, we saw 52% efficacy. After the second dose, it zooped up to 94% two weeks after getting that second shot. But what happened at between month five and six? Suddenly, as we're talking about symptomatic disease, not severe disease, the vaccine efficacy dropped to about 39%. So we're not talking about hospitalization. It still stayed really robust to hospitalization. It still stays really robust to severe disease. But that means breakthrough infections potentially, especially as people get older. You know this depressing thing, immunosenescence. Our immune system is simply not as robust as we age. What are we going to do? We see that it's dropping down, and we're learning that a third, a three-dose series is probably what's going to be required for the Pfizer vaccination to prevent those mild to moderate breakthrough infections from happening. Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research, and epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Before we get to COVID booster shots, you need to get your flu shot. Residents of Toronto may now book appointments for a flu shot at one of five city mass vaccination sites. And for those 65 and older, if you haven't gotten your high-dose shot by the beginning of November, you may get it at a city-run clinic. For more details on this year's flu shot campaign in Toronto, Libby was joined by Dr. Vanita Dubay, Toronto's Associate Medical Officer of Health. We're certainly prepared. Uh, the clinics are going to run for next week. I actually booked my own family in as well, too. Uh, they'll have uh, vaccines available from down to six months of age, uh, up until as old as you are. And the seniors will be getting the high-dose uh, flu vaccine there. How many people do you expect to uh, vaccinate there? Like, how many people do you go through in a day? How many appointments are there in a day? Well, it depends on the site. And so you'll see when you go to book an appointment that some sites offer more. Like, for example, the Metro Convention Center is a much larger site compared to some of the other sites. So that determines, it's really uh, the capacity of the space that determines how many um, appointments are available on those days or at that site. And But certainly uh, ready and able to vaccinate thousands uh, in the coming week. But I think it's also important to know, I mean, as you had, had stated, I mean, Toronto Public Health is not the only place to get a vaccine at our clinics, right? And so the pharmacies, doctor's offices, even workplaces are also um, available for, for providing vaccine clinics. Certainly, at least the doctor's offices get their supply from public health. So I know when we were uh, talking to some doctors, uh, their first shipment, they got a third of what they got the previous year. Do you have any information on when the next shipment is coming from, is coming? Yeah, so it's usually quite typical where we don't give them all the vaccines up front. Uh, part of it is because it takes time to actually go through the vaccines. Some of it is also logistics for how big is the fridge uh, at the doctor's office. But then they can also order more based on their own uh, supply and demand in their clinic as well. And then usually the shipments are, are quite regular on a weekly or biweekly basis for sure. 
Um, I think the, you know, you had mentioned earlier about the high dose vaccine. I think another important point for this flu season is a uh, flu ad is a new vaccine that has been added and it is, uh, it's not exactly a high dose vaccine. Like the high dose vaccine is four times the amount of the typical vaccine as is given to 65 plus. Fluad is what we called it adjuvanted vaccine. So, and it's for 65 plus as well too. And it essentially has an immune booster to the vaccine. And it's also been proven to, to give uh, more immunity to uh, seniors. And so that's another option if the high dose vaccine is not available. Okay. It's called Fluad. And what does this Fluad do? We don't really know. There haven't been any head-to-head comparisons, right, between the high dose and the fluad. But because the fluad has, it's called an adjuvant in the vaccine, uh, and it actually helps to stimulate the immune response. We know with the flu vaccine, sometimes you don't get the best immune response, and so it helps to stimulate the immune response to give that that uh, better protection. And so some studies have certainly shown uh, you know, less hospitalization, those kinds of uh, improvements with using this vaccine in seniors. Is there anything else uh, that you would like to leave us with on this? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to know that, you know, for those who uh, are eligible for a booster dose, for example, they have a weakened immune system, they're eligible for that third COVID vaccine, they can actually get it at the same time as getting uh, the flu vaccine. So that is safe. And so um, that's something to also consider to consider getting at the same time as well. I think the other piece is that we certainly want to see high vaccination rates. We saw them last year and we certainly want to see it again this year. Because, uh, you know, we're really bracing for a bad flu season. And we know that COVID is also out there. And we want to be able to prevent as much infection and illness and hospitalization as we can. Dr. Vanita Dubey, Toronto's Associate Medical Officer of Health. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Jody in Toronto called about loosened restrictions in restaurants and gyms, which may return to full capacity for fully vaccinated customers. Just because we're vaccinated, we can still give it and get it. And that is disturbing. So this whole thing about opening everything up and pretending like everything's back to normal, it's frightening. It's frightening to me. So are you going out at all or just to select places or what? Only to families and mostly outside. Uh, I'm not comfortable with this at all. Janice and Midland called to share a personal experience about loosened restrictions. The local YMCA opened up and I joined and looked at the schedule and decided I would go to an Aquafit class. Good. And saw that they would accept 30 people in the class. And that in itself concerned me. I wasn't 
quite sure how 30 people fit in the pool. I couldn't remember how big the pool was. Um, but it turned out that wasn't my biggest problem. When I got there, they only had one change room open for everyone, male or female. And all of those 30 people had to get changed in that one tiny change room. And then the door is locked. So you cannot go to the pool until about one minute before the class. So 30 people are stuck in the change room waiting to go and disperse themselves out into the pool area. Hmm. I found that very uncomfortable. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from David in Toronto, who phoned with his concerns and questions about the healthcare backlog associated with the pandemic. The government may have saved a lot of money on treatments for, you know, whether it be cataracts, knee surgeries, heart, etc., etc. They got their money from the federal government. So, is the provincial government just reinvesting the saved funds or are they adding more to it? Um, also, what is the OMA's position? Are they going to triage certain things such as heart conditions, cancer, um, ophthalmology, the same way that was done with the, um, the COVID patients? How are they going to go and, and clear up the backlog? That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.